This is Tech Refactored. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Today, we're joined by Dr. Razul Mahmood, who is a professor at the School of Natural Resources at the University of Nebraska. He is an applied climatologist and the director of the High Plains Regional Climate Center. He is also a recipient of a supplemental grant award from the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. This is a program designed to provide supplemental research funding to teams that are already engaged in active internally or externally funded research here at the university. These grants encourage researchers developing new technologies to consider potential policy aspects of their research and are meant in the longer term to facilitate new interdisciplinary collaboration. Dr. Mahmood's research, conducted in conjunction with this funding, will comprehensively identify and review academic and industry literature, examining connections between policies and impact on land use, land cover change, with a focus on how agricultural policies, RFSs, and trade agreements may influence these use changes in the agricultural sector in Nebraska. Razul, thanks for joining us on Tech Refactored. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start just by talking a bit about uh, you and your work generally. Uh, I know you're the director of the High Plains uh, Regional Climate Center. Can you tell us about uh, the work that the center does? Yes, so High Plains Regional Climate Center is a part of a federal structure that basically the largest scale is national and then regional and state level. So this is the way it is viewed and from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, who largely funds us. And there are six regional climate centers that covers the entire country, and High Plains Regional Climate Center is one of them. If I say it very briefly, our main uh, mission is to provide data and climate database decision tools for our stakeholders throughout the High Plains region and beyond. And some of our actually most popular tools and products are national scale. Can you describe what some of uh, the, these tools and products are and uh, the sort of substantive research and work that you and the center engage in? Yes, so some of the tools could be, for example, you want to know what is the precipitation in the U.S. for last seven days or 15 days or 30 days, 90 days, 60 days. Here in Nebraska, I think the answer is none. But none. <laughs> yes, that's, that, that's correct. And you want to know how much is deviated from the normal. You know, you can look at same way temperature data. There are measures that we use for drought monitoring. You can look at that at different time scale and geographical scale. You can hone it down to a state level. You say, I want to see a high plains only. I want to see for the entire country. You can, that's one example of many tools uh, we have developed over a period of time. And uh, generally, you're, you're an applied climatologist. Is this the sort of work generally applied climatologists uh, are engaged in? Yes, uh, applied climatologists do obviously a wide variety of things and it's application oriented. We applied climatologists do research that leads to uh, applications and that can be a development of tools and data products are one aspect of what applied climatologists do. 
And being located here at the university, how does the center engage with uh, or support the university's uh, resources and mission? So um, obviously, university is uh, one of the mission is education and engagement and outreach for the benefits of the citizens of state of Nebraska. What we do, we help educate students from only from the center side, for example. We recruit students who come and work as student assistants and we teach them how to handle climate data, how to analyze them, what to do with them. And some of them even go out and uh, communicate with stakeholders, participate in those discussions. And uh, some of them write their master's thesis or doctoral dissertation on those topics and then they become a productive member of the society. So we unsurprisingly talk a lot about climate change nowadays. From the teaching side of things, how has the the field changed? How have the students and uh, what they're doing or what their interests in the field changed over time? My perspective is partly my own life that, uh, say, 30 years ago, we used to talk about when we actually just started. I remember my first year in graduate school when first IPCC report came out and we are all drooling over it. Our mentors asked us to read and it was not as big thick these days. Uh, but uh, what happened with time is that we, when we teach, we bring these issues up. I mean, there's a, there are basics about weather and climate. Uh, students learn those basics, but along with that, how climate change is impacting that. For example, they can think of extreme precipitation, but now we also introduce them the idea of that the trends in those extreme precipitation may have changed over a period of time or change during a particular season and etc. Or geographic location, maybe somewhere it didn't change, but somewhere else it has changed and things like that. So th- this this is just an outright selfish question that I'm going to ask. In my previous life, before I was an academic, I was a, a researcher, a computer scientist at Los Alamos National Lab, and yeah. I got to work on some supercomputer-based climate modeling projects. So I'm just curious, uh, does the center do any climate modeling, or how do you engage with those who do? Say, I mean, I do climate, not large-scale, but mesoscale weather and climate modeling work I do. Uh, for my own research, that's not uh, 100% say, you know, uh, objective or mission of the center. But for my own research, and I engage students where uh, we look at land use land cover change and how it impacts weather and climate, including for Nebraska. Can you tell me a bit about uh, the team that you have at the center? Well, my team is largely composed of uh, professional staff and few students. So professional staff, they are busy with keeping our IT infrastructure up and running and make sure because we get data feed from the entire country that comes through us. We make sure that feed is coming in. We process them and we have partners the data goes out to those partners and also all these different tools they, that we operate 
the data coming in and also ensure that those tools are properly working. So um, quite a few of my IT staff, information technology staff, they're busy with that. IT security and these things are very important these days, as you know. They're busy with that. And then I have staff members who are very much engagement-oriented. So they uh, pick up the phone and answer questions that from our stakeholders or our partners when they come and ask us. And also they participate, they go out, they engage, they educate them about the climate data, how to use them, how they can use our tools and uh, make better decisions and so forth. And where do you get data from? Certainly partner institutions providing, I guess, raw data feeds, but do you have instruments out in the field collecting data? Do you operate your own instruments? Uh, I know we we have a, a weather station on our house collecting up lots of real-time information. I could log into it right now on my computer and see the wind speed and temperature and amount of rain and uh, solar exposure for the last three years at my right. fingertips. Do you, right. do you collect uh, that sort of data? No, we do not collect data, but our data mostly comes from the observational infrastructure maintained by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And within that, it has different divisions. They do different kind of things. So different types of data collection. Vast majority of, of our data comes from basically U.S. government. And then there are some data comes from these different states, including our own state, that these mesonets, that mesoscale weather observing networks operated by different states. And so data from those cooperating, not all of them, but majority of the states from our region, data flows from there. And we do quality assurance and quality control of that data and also provide them to the users. Uh, speaking of government partnerships, the the big project uh, that uh, you've been working on, that the specific funding that we'll turn to in a couple of minutes to discuss, uh, it's a, I believe it's an NSF-funded project, um, the Great Plains Irrigation Experiment. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, that work? The idea is that we have known for years that land use, land cover, impacts weather and climate. And we know what we call land atmospheric interactions, such as over, say, desert area, you have very hot. In urban areas, we call urban heat island that there, you know, so we change the land use, land cover and that. Uh, At the same time, if you put a lot of water somewhere, there is a possibility of a little bit of cooling of temperatures and things like that. So that project that, that the National Science Foundation funded us to look at how irrigation is impacting local scale, what we call meso and regional scale weather and climate. So for that project, we have collected field data for the first time for a long period of time. Long period means 30 days. Typically, these data, people have data in the past for a day or two so we could not have robust testing of hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So we have collected data for 30-day period 
two weeks at a time. One is during the beginning of the growing season and then during the peak growing season when a lot of irrigation water is applied. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole suite of array of instrumentation we have deployed at the time to collect those data over about 60 mile by 60 mile area in eastern Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And those deals, it also provides a nice gradient of rain-fed mm-hmm. agriculture to irrigated agriculture such as York and Fillmore counties versus Lancaster County or Cass County where it's largely rain-fed agriculture so that we can see the how land and atmosphere interact. So that's the I mean, basically, the objective of that funding. So it, it kind of gives you a, a natural differences and differences sort of uh, a methodology built in there with right. the, the different amounts there. Right. Um, g- going into the project, I, I guess I should start by asking, how far are you into this project? Are you in the early stages or are you starting to see results? We are basically towards the late stage of the projects. We have coll- We have started the project late 2017. We collected all of our data in uh, during the summer of our growing season of 2019. And then I think uh, we started to get quality assured data. There's other groups who work on just make sure the data is quality assured, quality controlled. It came to us around 2019. And since then, we have been analyzing the data. So... But we are, uh, I mean, our project is going to end in this fall in terms of analysis and everything. But I think some work will still continue. We'll not completely complete everything. Or we are finding, let's put it this way, we're finding new things to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So it's like, oh, we need to look at this. So that part is going to go on at least a few more years. When you started this work, did you have any expectations or hypotheses that you were testing? And what what have you learned going through this process? Yes. So the underlying hypothesis of the work is that when you have these two different land uses, one is rain-fed, one is irrigated, during a a daytime or a 24-hour cycle, the lower part of the atmosphere, which you call planetary boundary layer atmosphere, or in short, PBL, that modulates. It actually breaks down or disappears at night. It shrinks to about 50 meters, 150 feet or so. But during daytime with heating, basically solar radiation, that helps it to expand. It can expand up to one to two kilometers, so a mile, mile and a half. So basically, when you look at the like a cloud base bottom, that sort of end of the planetary boundary layer. Mm-hmm. So, but there are, so that is one thing we wanted to study that how it evolves. We wanted to study, there are a few things, what I call convective parameters. In other words, cloud development or convection, some underlying conditions, do they change? We wanted to study near surface meteorology that, you know, humidity, temperature, how they have changed during early growing season, during the peak growing season, and in between rain-fed and irrigated land use. And as you've been looking at this, these are the things you want to look at. Have you come to any surprising conclusions or results? Yes. Yes. I mean, very lately, or I would say late last year, the surprising part and we are happy that we had. It is like a back of our mind kind of hypothesis 
kind of we thought that we might see this, but we didn't know, so we didn't talk about it because mm-hmm. it may get shot down that it's a too crazy of an idea. So what we found that a lot of the literature, scientific literature suggests that lens forcing on a meteorological time scale, particularly when it comes to convection and things like that, it is entirely dependent upon one kind of background atmospheric condition. And what is that? That is basically when you have a nice sunny day, land can have quite a bit of impact. But when you have, you know, cloud development or atmosphere is unstable, what we call, at that time, these influences get really mitigated mm-hmm. uh, or disappear even. But what we found in this case, that's not the case. In other words, we have separated data for clear days and non-clear days. Non-clear days means you may have other stuff happening in the atmosphere, active days, unstable days. And we have found that results for the clear days holds for those non-clear active days. Hmm. Uh, We have just submitted the paper. (laughs) We'll see what happens. But that was, I think, was quite revealing. We have also found, and one of my colleagues can speak more about this, that there is a flow that goes, what we call upslope flow. We don't see it in natural eyes, but as we go west, elevation increases, right, Uh, from eastern Nebraska towards western Nebraska. But even within 60-mile area, uh, there is an upslope flow of wind that occurs naturally mm-hmm. with daytime heating and other things. But we have found that that gets weakened due, due to irrigation forcing. So that's also, you know, we have several groups are working. That's another group within our team looked into that. So the, it sounds as though uh, the, the impacts of human activity and irrigation in, in uh, this particular example are more dramatic uh, than uh, we expected. We need to take a brief break. Uh, we are speaking with uh, Dr. Rul Mahmood from here at the University of Nebraska about uh, his research. He is the director of the High Plains Regional Climate Center. And when we come back, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about understanding and grappling with the scale of impacts of activity that sometimes we might uh, not expect to have dramatic impacts and bring in discussion about the policy dimension and his work to understand and how those policies tie into uh, and might impact land use land cover change. Hi, listeners. I'm Lysander Marquez, and I'm one of the producers of Tech Refactored. I hope you're enjoying this episode of our show. One of my favorite things about being one of the producers of Tech Refactored is coming up with episode ideas and meeting all of our amazing guests. We especially love it when we get audience suggestions. Do you have an idea for Tech Refactored? Is there some thorny tech issue you'd love to hear us break down? Visit our website or tweet us at UNL underscore NGTC to submit your ideas to the show. And don't forget, the best way to help us continue making content like this episode is word of mouth. So ask your friends if they have an idea too. Now, back to this episode of Tech Refactored.
Okay, we are back talking with uh, Dr. Razul Mahmoud. I, I want to start by asking, you were just describing the Great Plains irrigation experiment work that you're doing. It, it sounds as though one of your findings is that the impacts of irrigation are greater than we uh, had expected. And I, I, I guess I want to start by asking, why do you think we expected there weren't impacts here or there, the impacts were less uh, substantial than it's turning out they are? I think partly because we didn't have the data to look at. That's that's the main thing. Because so that's that would be my conclusion that uh, we didn't have data, so we did not know. So that would be my thought. Mm-hmm. What was it surprising? The last bit uh, that you uh, discussed the the impacts of just a really gentle slope on wind and the the effects that irrigation can have on that. What was that a particularly surprising result? Well, I could be biased, obviously. I mean, in a sense that I this is something I'm very interested to. For me, I think I was surprised to see that. And on one hand, we thought that, okay, if you have that kind of large-scale irrigation, maybe we'll see something. But at the same time, I'm surprised, but not surprised. Turning now to uh, the supplemental research that uh, you were able to do, you were looking at the effect of government policy on land use, co- land cover change. Can you tell us a bit about, first, why you want to look at this? And uh, second, just generally, what is the issue that you were looking at? Yes. So um, like many other folks, it could be a researcher or it could be a lay person. The idea is that, okay, I mean, I understand this, how it works in the natural physical world, but land use, land cover change just doesn't happen because it just, it's not a serendipity, right? And with time, I learned that policies play a very important role in terms of farmers or anybody else that how they treat the available land. So then um, as a novice, I am not expert on that topic, but I started to think about that, well, you know, I mean, there is a, a different countries grow crops. There is an international market. We compete for price and things like that. And, uh, you know, environment, etc. Those policies, the so government devised those policies, trade policies, environmental policies, all of that. Some of them are market-driven. Some of them are, you know, the right thing to do kind of stuff. So those things drive the land use, land cover change. And then my question is, well, it would be nice to connect this, that how these, you know, things that are happening maybe somewhere else and decision being made in Washington, D.C. or Europe, and those things flows through a chain of connections and interactions, and that eventually dictates how an individual farmer uses his or her land. So um, I thought it would be, and, and then that usage has an impact on how that land and atmosphere interacts, and there can be a feedback loop, right? I mean, then that comes back and feeds back to the land. So I was basically curious to see if there is that linkage. Uh, so that basically motivated me 
to do this land use land cover change policy work. Yeah, and that I ideally we would want both sides of this equation to be endogenous or have a feedback loop between them as as you're doing research on the ground yeah. to understand how these changes may or may not manifest that would become an input into the policies that are driving land use changes yeah. so that we can understand a better policy understand the impacts of those policies and what what have you learned as you've gone through and looked at these policies Okay, so uh, we have been basically looking into literature, what is available for the policy and land use. I have found that, yes, there are policies. Uh, we, we uh, for the time and everything, we, we focused on just U.S., uh, U.S. government policies. So literature shows from different studies that variety of, you know, from conservation policies uh, and other sort of policies, they, in fact, impacts the land use part of it. So that's what we have learned. So yes. the, the policies tend to be focused, and, and this intuitively makes sense, on the, the land use side of things. We, right. we want to encourage more agriculture. We want to encourage right. perhaps less agriculture. We might right. want to encourage different types of agriculture. Or you know what? Let's cover start covering these acres with solar panels and change the crops to be more right. shade tolerant under right. the solar panel. Yeah. All of this, we're, we're focused in, in the first order goals. Right. Um, not necessarily how this is going to affect the land cover and that in right. turn is going right. to affect the land change. That's correct. That's correct. So I, I guess this is a naive sounding question perhaps, or perhaps just an outright naive question, but well, why does uh, why does land use land cover change matter? Why, why is this an important thing for us to understand? One of the part of it is if you look at land use land cover change, some can be very large scale, some can be Local scale, large scale example could be, say, a large part of Amazonia, for example, the deforesting and things like that. So that has one sort of impacts. But then there are these local and regional scale impacts of land use, land cover. And those impacts not only, say, flora and fauna and ecology of an area or a region can get impacted, but it also impacts quality of life, human health, et cetera, et cetera. So, that, those, so we want to mitigate them. And also there's a sustainability issues and things like that. So to understand, so it is not only we are, we are focused on how land impacts weather and climate, but that impacts goes further down. So it is one piece of the puzzle. That's the way... I'm and our group is looking at it. So you uh, said previously that as you're coming to the close of your your current grant, you have more questions that uh, you, you're starting to think about and you want to answer. Right. Can you give us some examples of what might be next? Uh, some of the things we would like to look at, some other atmospheric phenomena that we have not looked at, we would like to look at, and we have collected a very vast amount of data. So we would, we'd, we, this project itself, you know, in fact, the projects, most of the funding actually went to collect the data. Mm -hmm. Third of it, only one third is to do the analysis. So we would like to look at those parts, the data we haven't, didn't get a chance to analyze much. 
And for example, we would like to look at the radar data we collected and how these different, what we call, boundaries develop over dry and wet lands. And that has not been done. Radar data has not been used for that kind of purposes before. So that would be something novel. And we may find that, oh, this is fantastic. This is not the way we looked at. So can be, uh, plus, obviously, we will or try to uh, test some hypothesis along with that, not only just data or novelty of the instruments. Can you help me understand the the scale of the changes that um, you're looking at? We certainly have year-to-year weather variations. Uh, We also have broader climate uh, changes. Are the land use, land cover changes on a scale, uh, an order of magnitude that we should be thinking uh, if we have a particularly uh, dry year one year or wet year one year, just ordinary weather changes, we might alter our land use priorities in order to have a more normal year. Uh, is that the, the scale of uh, effects that you're looking at here? Yeah, right now we are looking at more of a meteorological time scale. In other words, short in terms of time and space, both perspective. So, and the data we collected, it was basically, it was more of a wet side of things rather than dry. During dry time, farmers put more water for irrigated agriculture, right? So, um, it was not exactly like that. So, data is going to tell us a story for that particular conditions. But we can infer from that things that how land atmosphere behaves Mm -hmm. and things like that. And one of the things that at this scale, it is we are looking at a local scale and maybe a little bit more. We can infer regional scale from this scale that uh, the point we make that there are impacts that are global scale. For example, carbon dioxide emissions, and it is well mixed in the atmosphere and it impacts uh, you know, atmospheric temperature globally. But still we see variation. The impacts varies from Arctic to, say, equator and tropics and so forth. But at the same time, a lot of changes that can happen at the local scale that impacts people who live in there, that local scale. So they may not have a global impact, but they have a local and regional impact, which are still very important. Who do you wish were your consumers of this information? So these results first, is this useful for policymakers? Is it useful for farmers? Is it useful for, I don't know, I'm asking the question. Um, And are there anyone, are there others who you think, if only you saw this information, if you understood this better, you might approach things differently. You might uh, do stuff differently. I can see that it could be from local level decision makers who are interested in, for example, the comfort, even, you know, if you are irrigated areas, your humidity level is going to be very high. So that can create problem when it comes to, you know, high temperature days during the summer. So that can be a challenge for certain folks with certain health conditions and things like that. So it could be looked at from that perspective. It can be looked at, uh, for example, even weather forecasters that if they know particularly that, okay, my land use in my area, where I do my forecast, this, 
part of the weather forecasting is a little bit of art. So that art part comes into play. So local level decision makers to uh, regional level decision makers, I think in many different ways uh, it impacts, can be a consumer of this uh, outcome of this research. Any last thoughts or things that you'd uh, like to share with listeners? Yes, I think like one thing I would like to say, which is not a surprise, but it comes with a different dimension that, you know, any work you do, I'm going beyond the research that it requires collaboration and collaboration not among your scientific peers, but also general public. For example, all of our equipments are placed in private lands. And we have sought out 100 plus such sites. So it, it came down and when we are pursuing this project, most of us are not from Nebraska and people doesn't know us, a bunch of, whole bunch of strangers, about 40 of them you know, <laughs> running around this area. But we reached out to, for example, our colleagues at Agricultural Extension or Natural Resources Districts. They are our local. They don't know us either, but they trusted us when I explained it to them. And they are the reliable source that local citizens or trust, point of trusts. So they are the one introduced us to the citizens and citizens also trusted us, but without that trust, none of this data can be collected. I mean, it's, it's and then the, which means the project is dead, right? I thought that was a wonderful learning. It's a, a great, those points are just a, a great general reflection on uh, research. It, it's about collaborations. It's yeah. about trust. Uh, we were here trying to do interdisciplinary work and getting folks to uh, uh, work across fields and people, disciplines they might not understand or understand the relevance of to their own work. And that, that's a leap of faith and it's, yeah. uh, it requires trust. And it also requires, I, I love the example, it requires recognizing we're going somewhere, we're, yeah. we're flying and have to be able to land. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. folks are out there helping to uh, build uh, uh, build for us right. because right. we're, we're going to need it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, we've been uh, speaking with uh, Dr. Uh, Razul Mahmood. Thank you for taking the time. And thank you, as always, uh, listeners, for joining us on this episode of Tech Refactored. I've been your host, Gus Hurwitz. If you would like to learn more about what we're doing here at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, or would just like to submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu, or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show is produced by Elsbeth Magilton and Lysandra Marquez, and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series. Until next time, keep your planetary boundary layer well-defined. <laughs>